This time, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 and the end of that chapter. Genesis 25, verses 19 uh, through verse 34. Genesis 19 through 34 is uh, where we're going to be looking uh, together today. In Genesis uh, chapter 25, verse 19, we begin the next section, a big section of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with three large sections. You have the Abraham story, Genesis 12 through 24, the Jacob story, Genesis 25 through 35, and the Joseph story, Genesis 37 through 50. We've already made it the whole way through Abraham's story, and now we start into the second, the one about Jacob. This section starts the way all the major sections of Genesis does or do with the phrase, these are the generations of, in uh, verse 19. And then we find out uh, this is the generation of Isaac. Now, that statement is a little bit misleading to us English readers in that of Genesis 25 through 35, only one chapter is going to be directly about Isaac. But what Moses is going to do in this book is he is going to tell us what became of Isaac through his youngest son, Jacob, so that most of this story is about Jacob. The Jacob story comes in three big parts. You have the early episodes, the Laban, well, I'll just call the Laban Chronicles. I'll call it that for now. I might fix it later. And then the final episodes, okay, early Final, and then you've got the Laban stories uh, right in the middle. Uh, and so today we're going to start with the beginnings of the early episodes in Genesis 25. Some good stories start on a high point, you know, some dramatic, exciting development that grabs your attention. These stories normally start on the high, but then descend to the low and work through twists in the plot and story and developments. And, and then finally, most good stories, at least the ones I like to read, have some sort of good ending. I think that's Abraham's story in a nutshell. That's the way the last story went. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham, and he immediately obeys. God tells him to get up and go somewhere, and he goes, and so it starts on a high. Then uh, most of his life are lows, twisting, sinister stuff going on in Abraham's story, but then it ends in Genesis 25, verses 7 and 8, with a good ending here. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's how I describe the Abraham story. High, low, high. Well, as good as death gets, right? <laughs> when we come to Jacob's story, his story does not have the advantage of starting with a high. Okay, it starts low. Okay, this is an example of a rags-to-riches story. Okay, and so in Jacob's life, most of his life will be the depths. Okay, there'll be a lot of twists and turns along the way as well, but then ultimately it will end at Bethel, the house of God, where God meets with Jacob 
just before he dies. And so what that means for us today is uh, we're going to start the beginnings of this story by looking at some depths and wonder, will it ever get better for uh, Jacob? So the beginnings of Jacob's life have two parts. Uh, the first scene I call the birth scene, verse 19. Why don't you look there in your Bible uh, at this first paragraph. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So you might object a little bit to how I told the story. You say, well, barrenness, but then there's a birth. But I'm going to suggest that most of this is uh, a low point, this birth scene. If I had a subtitle to verses 19 through 26, I would say, I would call it tormenting twins uh, here in this passage. The birth scene uh, only includes a little bit of information about the birth itself. The narrative starts well before the birth. I think if you do the math, Isaac prays, begins praying for Rebekah about, you know, um, maybe up to 20 years or so before she actually conceives and has a child. But Isaac intercedes to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she's not able to have children. I, I want to point out a few things about the birth scene uh, to you that I think are worthy of our reflection this morning. Uh, first, in verse 21, we see Isaac's privileged possession as one who is among the woman's seed who will eventually crush the serpent's head. Remember that way back in Genesis uh, chapters 3 and 4. He's, uh, Isaac is a part of this chosen, promised line through which the Messiah will one day come. And we can see his chosen nature by the fact that God decides to answer his prayer. God answers this prayer. Rebekah, his wife, was barren, and barrenness already in Genesis is a reoccurring theme. Okay, and it won't stop here. It's going to uh, occur again and again. And it's especially reoccurring among the special line of descendants from which the Messiah will come. And I think God is just emphasizing through all these struggles with infertility in Genesis that if the promised deliverer is going to come, it's not going to come through human strength or effort. It will come through the intervention of God. Isaac's own parents struggled with infertility, Abraham and Sarah, and she eventually gives birth, but not until she's 90. Now, uh, Isaac and Rebekah struggle as well, and Isaac 
throughout these narratives, when he is mentioned, we'll see him often repeating the sins of Abraham. In this case, however, he doesn't do that. He does not resort to producing children through concubines as Abraham, the patriarch, did. Instead, Isaac prays to the Lord about Rebekah's barrenness, and the Lord grants his prayer. Although Moses doesn't have a lot to say about Isaac, and when he does talk about Isaac, he normally portrays him as a passive man willing to show leadership or intervene when he needs to, in this case, Isaac does does what is right. He calls out to God because he knows that human reproduction comes from God. He knows that God is a source of all life. And so he calls out to him, and I think he does what is right. After this miraculous conception in the story, though, things quickly turn sour, and this is where, you know, I I would argue that it starts out on a low. Uh, As you're looking here in the text, you see Rebecca's pregnancy is so difficult that she inquires of the Lord what was happening inside of her. Okay, well, uh, women, I can in no way relate to the pains of pregnancy, Okay, so I'm not even going to try. But what seems to be obvious in this passage is that this is unusual pain. She's just not like a new mother, you know, nervous about what's going on inside. This is unusual pain that she's experiencing in her pregnancy. Her pain is described in a vivid way in the text here, actually. Moses says that the children were struggling within her. Okay, so I'll just point out a few things about that phrase. Okay, first, the children, plural. Okay, to this point, I don't think Rebecca knew that she had multiple children in her womb. That might explain a little bit of the pain uh, that she was experiencing. Of course, back in those days, there were no sonograms. And uh, I can speak from personal experience that sonograms can sometimes be wrong anyway, um, especially when it comes to twins. Uh, so no sonograms, but, but uh, we, um, as an alert reader, are picking up on that, okay, there are children in her womb, and the text says that these children were struggling within her. Now, the word struggle in English is a pretty calm term, but the Hebrew word behind it is quite severe. It's intense. The word struggle could be translated, and is in other texts, to crush, smash, or break in Scripture. For instance, you could write down Judges 9 and verse 53. Judges 9, verse 53, in the book of Judges, this word struggle is used to describe Abimelech's skull being crushed by a large millstone. Crushed. In the book of Isaiah, it's used of reeds that are being broken, Isaiah 36 and verse 6. And so I would suggest that these weren't normal babies. They are tormenting each other in the womb. Can you imagine this pregnancy and what she must have been experiencing? The answer to prayer, 
of Isaac turns into a nightmare. Nightmare situation. Have you ever prayed for something for a long time? Only to have it become less fulfilling than you thought? You prayed for a certain car for a while. Lord, give me this car. Give me this. I can't wait to have this car. Lord, please, you know, I'll do whatever it takes. And then you get the car and it turns into a lemon. I wonder if Rebecca, during her pregnancy, like regretted the prayers. The 20 years. Regardless, these rival brothers fit within a pattern of rivalry and tension that goes throughout the book of Genesis. Okay, we're just about ready to see the rivalry between Joseph and his brothers that sell him off into slavery because he's the advantaged one. Okay, and if you remember Earlier in our story, we saw the rivalry and the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. And so an alert reader of Genesis comes to this story, and he hears about, like, dueling twins in the womb, and he's probably not surprised. Or she. Like, yeah, I've seen this movie before. In in the promised line, there's rivalry and tension between siblings. Now, with uh, with that, uh, very little remains in the birth story except a brief description of each son in verses 5 and 6. And these are amazing descriptions, very vivid in their detail as well. The older son was red in complexion, and he was hairy. While these details might seem unessential to us, Esau's hairy complexion will become an important part of a future story in his life. I'll just point out that the words translated as a hairy cloak uh, by the ESV are interesting. In some translations, the concept is clearly portrayed that the baby's flesh looks like he's wearing a hairy garment. So I say tormenting twins, right? He's so hairy that his name becomes Esau, a Hebrew word which means hair. Okay, so I liked how they did this in the Old Testament sometimes, of course being led by God in this this point, but they just kind of looked at the physical features of the child and, okay, we're going to call this one hair, okay, (laughs) hairy. Uh, The second son, uh, the younger son, comes out, uh, the text says, holding Esau's heel. This vividly portrays, I think, the the wrestling and the smashing that was taking place in the womb. And what we learn about Jacob is he's a grabber. I don't know if this has ever happened to you before. Have you ever held like a little baby before and they reach out and like grab your nose? And you kind of get shocked by the strength in those little fingers? Sometimes. So I hold babies like out here. I'm sure you'd be really impressed with the strength of Jacob's grip. He comes out gripping Esau's heel. Um... Uh, he is, and we're going to see as we continue along here, he's a uh, usurper, he's a supplanter, he's wanting Jacob, or Esau's position. And one of the most joyful memories I've had uh, in the birth of our twins uh, was seeing them uh, when they came home from the hospital, uh, when they came 
um, and this wasn't always the case, uh, but I remember them seeing them sleep so peacefully in the same crib. Uh, because of the way things went with our birth, with the surprise twin, uh, we only had one crib. Uh, but then I found out when I was at the hospital that it's normal uh, to put twins together in the same crib so that they can sleep better. They're used to being close together in the crib. And I thought, that's great. I don't have to buy a second crib. Um, well, as I'm imagining the story here with Jacob and Esau, I'm sure Rebecca could not allow her boys to sleep in the same crib, or they might try to pulverize one another. And so Jacob receives his name because in Hebrew, Jacob comes from the word heel. Heel. He's going to grab the heel. And so that's the birth scene. Two unusual babies come from the same womb, uh, there's one other part of the beginning here, verses 27 through 34, and uh, in these verses, Moses skips their childhood to pause momentarily over an important scene about the birthright. Okay, so I've got, it's a two-point outline this morning, the birth scene, and then the birthright scene, verses 27 through 34. So look with me at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which in Hebrew means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Here things don't seem to be getting better yet. Although the boys are grown up, what we see in the text is that trouble continues. And um, the trouble and tension between these boys is fueled by something maybe even worse. And that is the unwise parents who pick favorites uh, among the boys. You'd think that this story perhaps would be some hope if in their family, the mature parents would help these two little boys who struggle so with each other. Uh, instead, the parents pick favorites and further polarize each boy. That's when, when we're looking closely at the text, we can find out something very unflattering about Isaac. When we see how his choice was made, right? The text says he picked his favorite based on his own appetite. If you look down at verse 28, it could literally read this way. Isaac loved Esau because of the game in his mouth. Since Esau's hunting brought Isaac delicious foods, Isaac preferred this twin. Now, I'll have more to say about Isaac's preference of Esau in future sermons. Because this little comment here foreshadows some stuff that's going to happen later. 
but I want you to at least see that. But, but then we see in the text as well that Rebekah is not without blame. She favors Jacob. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. There's a lot of speculation about why it might be. It may be simply because of the prophetic oracle that God had given to her earlier that the, uh, the older will serve the younger, one will be stronger, so it may be based on that. But regardless, parental preference is never a good idea. Okay, and so you've got these mixed up little twins, parents preferring one over the other. Uh, and then... Uh, after that, Moses relays a story that demonstrates more about each son. You probably know the story well, perhaps many of you do, uh, but I'll just review a little bit of it with you and point out a few things. Uh, the story goes this way. Esau is out in the field all day and is so utterly exhausted, he thinks he's going to die. Now, I think he might be, uh, may have mis. Uh, read the situation a bit, but you could almost hear Jacob getting really upset with Isaac, or uh, with, with Esau. Uh, you, you could almost hear Esau getting really upset with Jacob. Come on, come on, Jacob, just give me some food. I'm going to die if you don't give me some food. Uh, he's really hungry, and Jacob just so happens to be cooking a stew. Just so happens to be cooking a stew. I like how one commentator described things here. His name is Gordon Wenham. He said, Brotherly affection would surely demand that Jacob freely meet Esau's needs. But with callous calculation, Jacob insists that Esau exchange his firstborn's inheritance rights for the stew. Now, there are a few things in this story that just really struck out to me this week, and I think they're vivid and important, and so I would just point them out to you here in the text and draw your attention to them. First, in verse 30, when Esau comes, into the, comes in from the field, I think we can see his desperation in his very first words that he says to Jacob. And they're translated by the English Standard Version as, Let me eat. But that verb, again, is very powerful. It could be translated to devour greedily or gulp down. So the New American Standard translates it this, this way, let me have a swallow of that red stuff. The red stew. And that's a, it's a very wooden, literal translation that's actually pretty good. Let me have a swallow of that red stuff. This is a coarse way for someone to talk, suggesting, as one commentator said, a bestial veracity. This word, by the way, to eat, could be translated swallow, is used in other places of animals gulping things down. Okay, so we see how desperate it is. Let me have a swallow of that stew. But then second, we should also consider the importance of the oldest son's birthright in ancient times. Perhaps you've heard preacher or teaching on this before, but this is important to know as well if you're going to walk away from this text with a full picture of what's going on. The birthright was the right of the firstborn son who would receive a double portion of his father's inheritance. And uh, while that might seem unfair to us moderns in our ears, this is the way things worked in ancient times. Okay, so the firstborn son would get a double portion 
Uh, but of that firstborn son would be expected a few things. He would continue his father's legacy and care properly for his father's household and estate. But, of course, with Esau, we know, because we're alert readers of Genesis, if we're kind of following along, we know that his birthright involves more than just a double portion. Uh, his birthright is about the salvation of the whole world. His birthright, and being part, then, of a line of blessing, is about a line of promise through whom the Messiah will eventually come. Okay, so when he considers selling his birthright, he's considering these things, or he should see the significance of this moment for him. It's not just a double portion, it's also a special place among God's chosen line. And so when Jacob uh, uh, demands that Esau exchange his birthright for a bowl of stew, he is driving a very hard bargain here. So finally, we learn in the story that Esau relents, he agrees. The text just says it very quickly. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went away, and from that day forward, he despised his birthright. Esau gave up everything for immediate, the immediate gratification of his physical desires. That's the birthright scene. You know, before we leave here today, though, I want to give you some personal thoughts about each boy. And um, as I've had the time now for two weeks to be thinking about these these parts of the story, um, uh, transparently, I will tell you, I don't know which one of the boys I detest more. Okay, uh, I'll start with Esau. Esau is a coarse man, a hairy monster driven by his baser instincts. He is crass, and he's completely indifferent to the blessing that he deserves as the firstborn. I mean, how many preachers over the years have used Esau and his events here in the birthright scene as a negative example of our willingness to exchange our futures for immediate gratification. He's a crass man focused on the immediate. But I don't really like Jacob either. I mean, I think I'm supposed to like him because he is in the chosen line, but he is a devious man who takes advantage of his brother's weakness to get the birthright for himself. Jacob, we find out in the beginning of the story, is a schemer. He's a heel grabber who contrives ways to rip off his brother. And we're going to see later in the Jacob story that he's a complete scoundrel. thought at this point uh, in the sermon as I was thinking through preparing for it, I thought, you know, only a parent could love a creep like this. <laughs> Yet, men and women, and I want to end on a positive here, Jacob is one of the prime examples in New Testament Scripture of God's sovereign freedom to choose whomever he desires based on no human merits. If you think of the text I'm thinking of, In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, Paul is defending God's character. 
And the power of his word in the rejection, the temporary rejection of the Israelite people. Their rejection has nothing to do with God's word being powerless. No. Paul responds, instead of that, two things are true. Romans 9, 6 through 13. And you could go there sometime and read, and you could write these two things out to see if if you agree with them. Paul responds in two ways. The problem wasn't God. It's not like God gave promises to Israel they didn't come through on. The problem was Israel. Okay. And the two things that Paul Uh, establishes our first, God did not plan to save every single Jewish person in the Old Testament anyway. Only those who would demonstrate covenant faithfulness to him. That's Paul's first response. God's plan wasn't always to save every Israelite Israelite person in the Old Testament, only those who were faithful to the covenant. Okay, but secondly, and for our purposes, this one is perhaps more important, uh, not all of Abraham's children were the seed of Abraham. That's what Paul says in Romans 9. Not all of Abraham's children were of the seed of Abraham. And and here it seems that what he's saying is that not all of Abraham's offspring were part of the chosen line of God's blessing. Okay, so he gives two examples of sons who were chosen and rejected. If you remember Romans 9, 6 through 13. The first one, he starts with two sons who had the same father and a different mother. And those sons are Isaac and Ishmael. And I think he gives the illustration to demonstrate that both sons had the same advantage in heritage, yet God chose to bless one by including him in the promised line. That's Isaac. And the other was not chosen. Now, he then takes things further in Romans 9, and he ends with two sons who had the same father and the same mother, and his example is Jacob and Esau. Here, Jacob and Esau are a result of the same conception, the same gestation. There is no way someone might distinguish a reason to prefer one child over the other when it comes to the blessing of God. Yet for purposes that we might not even know, God chose the younger Jacob to be a part of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent's head. This story for Paul illustrates God's sovereign freedom to choose whom he wills. God is sovereign, and he is free to choose whom he wills, not on the basis of any human merit. The more we learn about who he did choose, Jacob, the more shocked I think we'll be that God chose him. I chose to use him. But I think it does more than shock us here. I think as we close, it also encourages us. Because Jacob's story not only illustrates God's sovereign freedom, it also illustrates God's mercy. 
God's choice, men and women, is not based on our efforts or choices. We can't say this. We can't say, I made the right choice, and that's why I'm right with God. We can't say that. That's what this story in Romans 9 helps us to understand. We can't say, I worked so hard, and that's why I'm right with God. No, we have no grounds for boasting, or no grounds to think that we are superior to any other people. And this text reminds us truly, as the New Testament will later say, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Think about that phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to any human effort or merit in our own. May Jacob's lowly start here remind us of our own. We were dead in trespasses and sins, following after the course of this world, following the prince of the power of, of the air. We were living in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature the children of disobedience, but God. You know what Ephesians do? But God raised us. But God, the text says, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's going to stop reading there, but I just got to keep reading. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The text continues, so that we may be able to perform the good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I said, as I read through the Jacob story, I say, I just don't like this guy, but I think that's because I can see too much of myself in him. We too were schemers. We too we're dead in trespasses and sins. We too were plotting to establish righteousness in our own. But our salvation came not on human merit. Our salvation came through the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're here today and you have wrestled or struggled with the character of God, you go through a text like this one, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out God, how God would do this. I would love the chance this week, perhaps after the service or sometime throughout the course of the week, to talk to you about these things. It's my prayer that this story, this ancient story of Jacob and Esau and God's decision to love on and extend blessing to a schemer and a devious man would encourage anyone in the room to know that there's hope for you you too can be saved from your sins. You too can experience the blessing of God through the work of Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for 
this story. I thank you uh, for uh, the way you led Moses to write this for us. It definitely starts at a low point. There's struggle and animosity from uh, the womb before the children were even born. And yet we know as well that each one of us were born dead in trespasses and sins, following after our own desires. And so as we look at this story and we consider the fact that you could use Jacob, may we be encouraged that you can use us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. None of us deserve it. None of us can make a case for why you should choose us over someone else. We were following after the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. But you chose to love us and lift us up and make us alive in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, thank you for your rich and abundant mercy to us through Christ. I would pray now for anyone here today who's never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved or delivered from their sin. Lord, I, I would pray that they would see within this Genesis text and, and maybe even the Romans text that I just read, they would see a God who has made a way for people to be saved from their sins. Might they understand that all people deserve wrath and hell, but that because of your abundant mercy, you show love, you've shown love to this world through your Son, Jesus. May they see that. May they believe in the name of Jesus Christ alone at this moment to save them from the consequences of their sins. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close in song.